0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In a 2012 book, the writer Anne Lamott described what she called the three essential prayers. Help, thanks, and wow. I've always loved that. I think it captures the essence of prayer. Most of our prayers, from the incoherent ones we say in the middle of the night when we can't sleep, to the ornate and traditional ones we say in church on Sunday mornings, fall into one of those three categories. Asking for God's help when we need it, or someone else does. Giving thanks for the good things in our life. Or simply expressing awe and wonder at the universe. But I can't help but think that Anne Lamott missed a fourth one-word prayer, one that's often left out, a kind of prayer that many people aren't even sure it's okay for them to say. Why? As in, why, God? Why? Why is this happening? Why is it happening to me? Why now? Just why? I want you to humor me for a second and close your eyes. Close your eyes and listen to some of Jeremiah's words in this First reading this morning, a couple different translations. Listen and think for a moment. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever prayed this kind of prayer? Lord, you know how I suffer. Take thought of me and care for me. Why am I always in pain? Why is my wound incurable so far beyond healing? Will you let me down when I need you, like a brook one goes to for water, but that cannot be relied on? So keep your eyes closed for a moment. If you have ever prayed this kind of prayer, if you've ever asked God why, if you've ever been angry at God for letting you down, or felt like saying, God, you know I'm suffering, do something, I want you to raise your hand. Okay, open your eyes for a second. It turns out that is the most common form of prayer. Not the most common form of prayer, but an almost universal one. One that almost every person experiences and prays at some point in their life. Sometimes this form of prayer, this why, God, is the only one that feels authentic. But often people feel like it's not a prayer that they can say. For some, it's because they've been taught that they're not allowed to. They're not supposed to question God's plans. Their attitude has to be, Thy will be done, no backtalk allowed. They're supposed to take up their cross and bear it without complaint. For others, the kind of situations that lead to this prayer tend to drive them away from God instead of toward God in prayer, and that makes perfect sense. Surely no loving God would allow such a thing to happen, and so there's no reason to bring it to prayer because there can't be anyone listening, or at least not anyone worth talking to. Still others, I think, have trouble with this kind of prayer because it's hard simply to find the right words to say. There are no words to express the depth of that confusion or pain or sorrow, and so we can't. But interestingly enough, it's the kind of prayer that we find over and over again throughout the Bible, The Psalms are full of cries to God, demands that God finally act to make things right. The book of Jonah turns the question into a short story, with Jonah shaking his fist at God's unreasonable injustice and unfairness. The book of Job sets it in verse as Job and his friends give speech after speech after speech, trying to understand why this is happening. And here we see the prophet Jeremiah's prayer. The prayer of a man called by God to prophesy unpleasant things to the people around him and to bear the brunt of their anger in response. And Jeremiah blames God. You did this to me. Your words were found, Jeremiah says, and I ate them and they were my joy. But look what's happened now. Jeremiah looks at his life in which he's done everything God has asked and he asks in response, why? How is this fair? When we ask these questions of one another, or when we speak them out loud, we human beings often reach for answers that try to make the senseless make sense. Everything happens for a reason, we might say. God never gives us more than we can handle. These words can sometimes be comforting, although more often not. But in a sense, they always minimize In the face of the many tragedies of life, the things that simply don't make sense, they try to make sense out of it, and they usually fail. God's answers to these prayers when they come up is different. God doesn't offer a rationalization or a tight answer. God doesn't try to make it make sense. God tends instead to reveal compassion and to offer hope. Compassion, after all, is at the heart of what the life of Jesus reveals about God. Compassion, in its original sense, con, meaning with, passion, meaning suffering, as in the passion of the Christ. God is a God of compassion, because God is a God who has suffered with us. When we cry out to God, asking why, God isn't angry that you're asking such a rude or impertinent question. God's answer is something like, I know, it hurts. I've been there too. This is why Jesus tells the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering. It's not an accident. It's part of the plan. It's part of what Jesus is here to do. And it's part of the plan because Jesus is God incarnate, God who hears our prayers walking among us on the face of the earth, and to say that Jesus suffers is to say that one of the Trinity suffers, that God suffers. That God knows what it is to be betrayed and to be in pain, to grieve and to suffer. Not just in the abstract sense that God as an omniscient deity knows everything, but as a very real, lived experience. Whatever you are going through, whatever you have gone through, whatever you will go through in this life, God knows God has been there before, and God is with you now. And for what it's worth, this is part of why what can feel like abstract debates about the theology of the Trinity or the divinity of Christ are so important. If Jesus is not God, then God does not suffer. God remains aloof. God remains outside human experience. It's also why Jesus' response to Peter's rebuke is so harsh. This is the stumbling block that Jesus sees. Peter's trying to tempt Jesus to stay aloof, to stay separate from human life, to avoid sharing in our pain. And Jesus could choose to do that. He's a miracle worker, for goodness sake. He's God. He can walk on water. He can walk through walls. He could spend the rest of his life by the sea, multiplying loaves and fishes and turning water into the wine. And it wouldn't be so bad but instead he chooses to turn the other way and to walk in the way of the cross. And somehow, he says, to transform it into a way of life. And he invites his disciples to do the same thing. And this is where it gets really strange. If they want to follow him, Jesus says, they should follow him, follow him in the way of the cross. They shouldn't try to insulate themselves from the pain of the world or stay separate from its suffering. It's going to come one way or another. But the way of the cross is somehow a way of life because the way of love inevitably brings us closer to suffering. When Jesus says that those who want to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake will find it, it's interesting. The word he uses here for life is psyche, which we often translate soul. It's as if those who want to save their life will lose their soul, in the sense that if you want to do as Peter suggests, if you want, God forbid, never to suffer, if you want to protect yourself from pain and spare yourself from any kind of suffering, you can only do it by risking your own soul, by giving up on love, by shutting off the compassion you feel for the people around you when they're in need, by pretending that no one else is worth thinking about or pretending that nothing bad ever happens to you. We ask, why is this happening? And God almost never answers the question, and it's frustrating. God listens with compassion, and God invites us to listen to one another with compassion. But that's never quite the end of the story, either. God isn't just there to comfort us in the face of suffering. God promises something more. God promises salvation Hope, new life, a better future world, something that's an actual solution to the problems that we face. Jeremiah asks why, and God doesn't only answer, I am with you, but I am with you, and I will deliver you. I will redeem you. Likewise, after Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to follow him, they're going to need to take up their crosses, he offers them hope. Those who are willing to be vulnerable, those who are willing to risk compassion and love, will be redeemed. For the Son of Man is to come with his angels, Jesus says, and then he will repay everyone for what they have done. And it's the same hope for God's future that animates Paul's letter to the Romans, his exhortation that they be patient now because God's justice is coming. Again and again in life, we ask God, Why? And there is no easy answer. But of course, an answer isn't usually what we really need. We need compassion. We need comfort. And we need hope. The hope that the story doesn't end here. That there is a future in which all the wounds of this world will be healed. So let love be genuine, Paul says. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. For I am with you, God says to Jeremiah. I am with you to save you and deliver you. Amen.